That way you don't lose it. <laughs> sure. So I'm Carrie. This is my wife, Kim, and we pastor a church in Traverse City, Michigan, and we've been, I think this is our 30th year in, in full-time ministry together. So um, your assignment before she finishes the introductions is to, I want you to summarize in one or two sentences everything your parents taught you about sex. Go. Carrie and I are, as you said, we are pastors. We pastor up in Traverse City, and we always usually get the same response. I think you gave me that response is, ooh, Traverse City. You got to, oh, I have the control now. That's my, whenever we get, we, we uh, get people say, oh, it's so beautiful up there. And I would say, yes, it is. When we moved up there, they told us it was God's country. But we learned something very quickly, and that's um, that God leaves in the wintertime. He goes south with all of our snowbirds because this is our reality. So to have the beautiful Traverse City, you have to be willing to endure this. This is our driveway here yeah. that goes up, <laughs> These to, are our two boys. up to a hill. We have yes, many casualties. Each tree that we hit when we try to get up the driveway and slide back down, I cut down with a chainsaw the next year. So it's widened over the years. But yes. um, we, yeah, we execute all those trees that dent our cars. We've been in Traverse City now 20, uh, going on 28 years. We've been lead pastors for 21 years. Before that, we were youth pastors. We've done kids ministry. Um, truthfully, we never wanted to be lead pastors. We said, God, that's just not cool. You know, lead pastors, they're just old. And something happens that we have to all grow old. And so we, we trusted Jesus um, and left youth ministry. Our heart was there. Um, we believe in ministering to kids and youth. Um, and he really, uh, what we have found is that you can trust Jesus with everything. And it has been the most amazing journey, most challenging journey um, as pastors. But we love what we do. We love that we're here today having these conversations. Um, the next thing, we are also parents. We have four kids, two boys, two girls, two biological, two adopted. We have three kids who are adults out uh, living outside of the house and then we have a 16 year old and I tell you that because we are living in the trenches and especially as we talk about this topic today we have dealt with we're, we've dug in the trenches we've cried in the trenches um, dealt with all of these issues that are facing our kids today um, and it's a lot of what drives us to serve this, the other thing that I think is important to where we come from today or come into this conversation is understanding our heart. Uh, my husband has a heart for apologetics. You're going to hear a lot. Um, he loves to not just tell kids um, truth or tell people the truth, but explain why God's ways are the best ways. And I think it's one of the things that I love most when I listen to him communicate. His, his heart is not just a list of do's and don'ts, but understanding the story God's story of sexuality and why the truth can push back the darkness. Because there's a lot of um, intimidation the enemy would, would teach us that or uh, help us think that we can't push back against those ideas. And I love his heart for that. And you'll hear a lot of that today. For me personally, I am a pastor, but I also am by vocation a social worker, and I have worked in child welfare for the last five years. We, were, we mentioned we were foster and adoptive parents, and so I have served um, in post-adoption, working on, in the trenches with parents. And so a lot of what we share today is from my experience in that. I worked first as a crisis case manager, going into families' homes, working with kids who were spiraling, families who were dealing with major issues, kids with mental health issues. Um, after that, became the supervisor of the Northern Michigan Post-Adoption Unit. Love that. 
but just this last fall kind of launched and stepped into what I really love, and that's parent trainings and parent advocacy. And I've just been able to join the parent advisory board for the Association of Children with Mental Health and talking about things like suicide, depression, porn addictions, sexuality, all of these things, which is really cool because I get to be in a secular um, environment and be uh, proclaim Christ. And so a lot of what we share with you comes out of that passion um, of the roles that we do. But I think when we ask the question, why are we here, I, I share personally, I am an AG kid. I grew up in an Assemblies of God church. I was in church three times a week. Remember when we had three services a week? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I was on the Bible quiz team. Uh, we were national Bible quizzers. Uh, we won nationals uh, down in San Antonio, Texas. I knew the word, 13 books of the Bible that we had memorized, and no one ever had conversation with me about sex. Not my parents, not my youth pastors. And so I'm very passionate about that because I woke up one day, a woman who sat in a health department in my local community, and I was preparing to marry a youth pastor, and I had stepped away from Christ for about six years. And I was in the lobby of that health department after coming back to Christ. Um, I had a lot of brokenness in this area of sex. And I remember having to take a test for HIV. And in that place, in that lobby, I was struck by the fact that the real reality of what I had done and the things that I had carried into my new life in Christ could really harm me and harm my future. And I remember thinking to myself, why did nobody tell me? Why didn't they tell me why I was precious as a woman of God? Why didn't they tell me God's philosophy of sex and how sex is an amazing thing? It is a gift from God. And that I could wait, not because it's a list of do's or don'ts or don't date unsafe people. You know, all I was told is don't do this and never why. And so that is one of the things I think that compels me and I know my husband as well, that we really believe that God can answer the questions that kids give us. And, and our heart is to really empower parents to do that. There is a, a scene in The Lord of the Rings, I don't know how many of you um, watch the Lord of the Rings movies. I've watched them like hundreds of times. Only because and, our kids force us. Oh, I love them. I love them. He's, we had to bring him kicking and screaming. But There's a lot of storylines. Like, yeah, where's this guy coming awesome. from? How do you say this guy's name again? And where's this guy come in? And, and why and are we always questions. fighting orcs? We fight other people. He asks a lot of questions, drives our kids crazy. But there is a scene in, in um, the second movie, The Two Towers, where um, Theoden, who has been, uh, he's awoken from his kind of stupor that he had been put in, and he's kind of aware of what's happening. And the orcs are coming to march on Rohan. And he just, he's in a moment of conflicting um, tension. I, he just says out loud, I will not risk open war. And Aragorn says back to him, open war is upon you whether you will risk it or not. And I think today as we deal with this over-sexualized culture, as we deal with the questions that our kids have, when we deal with these questions, we have to really understand that there is a battle whether we engage or not. And our kids are the victims. And my message often to parents is we will either address it on the front end and equip our kids and empower our kids the best that we, we can or we deal with it on the on the back end. And, and as pastors, we see it in the lives of our adults who come in with all kinds of brokenness. We see it in the forms of sexual abuse, porn addictions, all of those things where there's just a mess. And so I know that we, we as a church, haven't often done a great job at this. 
but I love that we're having these conversations today. And so that is our heart today is to say, how can we equip you as leaders to equip your parents? to convince you that parents can engage and can be a part of having these difficult conversations, but these really important conversations. Yeah, so I'll take your cards. Turning them face down. <laughs> Don't look at mine. <laughs> I'll shuffle them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so let's go through some of these here. Uh, if a guy loves you, he'll wait, stay dressed. That's a good philosophy. Sex is a gift from God. Blessing in marriage. Uh, gave me a few different videos. Uh, some pregnancy STD stuff. Some church life influence. That's good. Not much. Soul ties. It's holier than marriage. Avoid it. It makes you a man. Weird how both were taught. That is kind of weird. Uh, don't get anyone pregnant or I will hurt you. <laughs> My parents did not talk to me about it. So this is a little probably overweighted in the Christian home realm that when we teach this topic and, and we, we teach a lot in uh, Sunday mornings on this topic as well. In fact, we did the series Sex Talks within our church on Sunday mornings. I just did a series maybe a year and a half ago called Identity Crisis and Who You Are as a Human. And because often the foundation of our sexuality comes out of human sexuality. So what does it mean to be human first? And then what's it mean to be sexual second? If we don't define the first, we'll be way behind on the second. And we won't have the foundation. So what does it mean to be human? We talk about who you are as a human, as an image bearer of God, as a... Um, temple of the Holy Spirit, and, and you're also created sexual out of who God is. So God is unity in diversity in covenant. And so therefore, if we are made in his image, we are unity in diversity in, co in covenant. And if image bearers are made in his image, and the only way to make image bearers also has to be made in his image. So the sexuality comes out of who God is. Human sexuality. So what defines moral sexual behavior? It conforms to the character and nature of God himself. Unity. The two shall become one. Exclusivity. There's no God but God. Right? You shall have no other gods before me. So there's, there's two shall become one. There's exclusivity. But it, the two shall become one is diverse. It is male and female. It is uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Unity and diversity, and then out of that, there's a covenant love. So the reason that sexual morality is defined the way it is, they're not arbitrary guidelines or rules that God gives us. It emanates from who God is himself. We are made in his image, and the process to make image bearers is also made in his image. So we are there to communicate. Our sexuality is there not just to please us. It's there to communicate who God is to the world. And so that's where we start the whole foundation of this. Let's start there and then work our way to the rules. <laughs> well, I'm glad it's recorded. <laughs> yeah, and you can on our website if you want to go to Identity Crisis is a series that we did. And I think it might be the last one in the series called You're Created Sexual and what that means. Uh, it should still be up there. LivingHopeTC.org LivingHopeTC.org So 
10 years in youth ministry, and, and I'm pretty good at noticing patterns. And one thing I noticed was that um, students would struggle and some students would thrive. And they had decisions that they would make. So when you're kids, you make decisions every day. As a child, you're making decisions, right? Is it Fruity Pebbles or Cocoa Puffs for breakfast? Is it Spider-Man pajamas, Power Rangers? You know, real weighty stuff that you wrestle with as an eight-year-old. But then all of a sudden life happens to you and you're expected to make bigger decisions that have longer lasting impact. And what I found, I call them the big seven, that there's seven big areas of decision-making in life that every human's forced to make and every decision or, or the large proportion of those decisions in those areas will affect your future. I call them the big seven. What you believe about God defines everything else. Everything flows out of that. What you believe about your attitude, your attitude is going to color your your world, your your decision makings. So 12 spies went out, 12 spies came back. So two of the spies says, and they all saw the same stuff, right? And two of them said, hey, we can do this. What were their names? Yeah, Joshua and Caleb. 10 spies says, we don't think we can do that. No, let's name them. Yeah, nobody remembers those people, right? Because nobody names their kids after them, <laughs> right? We don't, want it. we don't want that in our family. That's all. The only difference is attitude. Uh, and then authority, how you handle authority, because authority is everywhere, and you're going to have to learn to process imperfect authority in the home, in church, at work, wherever. Um, pleasure. This is what's killing people today. Because if the, if the supreme ethic in life is happiness, we were never made for happiness to be God. Happiness is a byproduct of following God with our lives. But if you make it God, you'll always lose it. So pleasure, pursuing pleasure is a big thing. And then relationships and sex. I saw how they handle relationships and sex. How they handle what I call production, which is education, work, time, and money management. And how they handle adversity. There's going to be some trouble in your life, and how do you process that? Those are the big seven that we kind of patterned our youth ministry after, and we just rotated a lot of these subjects over and over. And I still, as a senior pastor, know that, man, these are, these are where people are living. I always felt if my sermon didn't matter on Monday that I failed. I wanted to make a difference where people were living. I realized people don't live at the church other than pastors. We, we kind of live there. But most of the people don't. They don't live there. They live out there. And, and I wanted to talk about stuff that they're dealing with. That's why I'm so happy that Pastor Matt is hosting this, because this is what people are talking about. This is what they're dealing with. And if we don't address these topics, kids that will be forced to go to church will go to church. But when they are not forced to go to church, in their mind they think it's irrelevant. If we're not dealing with relevant topics and relevant issues. So this was a big thing. Uh, we want to help equip those that serve. And then this is another thing that I found. Uh, go ahead with the the next one, is I came into ministry through, through aviation. I went to school to be a pilot. I went to Western Michigan down the road here and went to their flight school and, and did that. And then God called me into youth ministry. Uh, I had a pastor call me up and said, hey, would you try out to be my youth pastor? And when I got saved, I made a decision. I, got, I gave my life to Christ in college and I made a decision, two couple decisions, a couple acknowledgments. One, God is smarter than me. And two, he loves me. Therefore, he knows me better than I know me. And uh, I can trust him with my life because he's smarter than me. 
So when I got this call to say, hey, you want to try out to be a youth pastor, I just graduated from flight school, and I thought, I don't think the devil asked people to be youth pastors, so this must be God. So I, so I went into youth ministry, hated it um, the first couple years because airplanes are easy, right? You pull back, houses get smaller. You push forward, houses get bigger. Uh, but people are challenging. Ministry was a whole different challenge for me. Leadership was a different challenge for me. Church politics was a different challenge for me. All that stuff. And then I had some character issues that had to come to the surface as well that God could deal with. And ministry is a, a crucible to kind of fire you and, 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 and show you kind of who you are. And you have to deal with that. You have to wrestle with God and some of those issues. So anyway, I met and married my wife uh, at that church. And as I began teaching within the church structure, a couple of things dawned on me. Um, and that we teach mostly by presenting information, but not by training. We teach with presenting information, but we don't train. In, in aviation, when I teach you to be a pilot, I have to make sure you get it. I have to make sure you get it. I've got a student right now that I'm trying to get to solo, and they keep telling him, i got to step out. You got to do this by yourself. And we have to, as youth and children's ministries, realize that at some point they're going to fly solo. And we got to train them to know what's coming. For me, as a, as a pilot trainer, as a flight instructor, I don't just train them to fly the plane when everything's going good, I train them to fly the plane when everything's going bad. This is where your money is made. And when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to these big questions, this is when people are starting wrestling. This is when life, big questions, we need to train them for these seasons. Say, oh, yeah, I knew this was coming. Here it is. This is how I roll with it. And so the other thing I ran across is something called inoculation theory. Because as a youth pastor, and even now, I'm just troubled by students raised in church leaving the faith as they go. Why? Why such a large percentage of young people leaving the faith? And so I studied this thing called inoculation theory, which is the study of how do I get you to change your deeply held beliefs? And what they found is they tested this, and they tested it on a group of guinea pig college students, and that is they picked a topic that said, they thought, okay, if we're going to get them to change a belief, we need one that's deeply held, but also if they change it, it's not super dangerous. And so they picked the idea that brushing your teeth is good for you. So just put that idea out there. Premise one, brushing your teeth is good for you. How many of you believe that? Anybody? Okay. A couple of you. Good. <laughs> so that was the premise. Then what they did is they got somebody to write a pseudoscientific article on how brushing your teeth is not good for you. Actually, the new science coming out is showing that it, it wipes away the natural salivas and, and the good things that you already have in your mouth, and, and so it's actually not good for you. And they had four groups of students. So they would take the group one was no preparation. They would assess them. Do you believe brushing your teeth is good for you? Yes. Uh, then they would go in, they would read the article and assess if they changed their belief. Next group, reinforce prior belief. Hey, we just want you to know before you go in there, brushing your teeth is good for you. And then they would go in, read the article, and assess. Third group, 
was a warning. You're going to read an article that says brushing your teeth is bad for you. They would read the article, and then they would assess the belief. Last one was a warning plus a refutation. You're going to read an article that says brushing your teeth is bad for you. Here's why that's wrong. Then they would send them in and assess. Now, of those four groups, which group do you think changed the least? Yeah, group four. That's true. What changed the most? You think the first one? It was the second one. Just warning or, or just reinforcement of prior belief. They changed the most and they were actually harder to deprogram to get them to believe again that brushing your teeth is actually good for you. Listen, this was an experiment. This is actually true. Yeah, it did. Yeah. But for then I, I thought as a youth pastor and pastor, I thought that's how we teach. We just keep reinforcing prior beliefs. Don't have sex till you're married. Sexual immorality is bad. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. And that's all we give them. And then when they leave the house and they listen to people with multiple PhDs and multiple deep, meaningful experiences in their sexuality that's different than biblical morality, they begin to think, I wonder if I was lied to and I wonder if my pastor knows anything. I wonder... And, and usually they say, yeah, our pastors are nice people. They just don't know about this stuff. They just don't know because they read the pseudoscientific stuff or they hear from people with PhDs or whatever. And, and we know in the culture that you can line up a field of experts on this that will tell you why the Bible's wrong on this at very deep levels. From a theological standpoint to the Greek and the Hebrew from a sociological standpoint to an emotional standpoint, psycho psychology, sexuality, whatever, pick your discipline. And the highest, best educated people in the land are not in our churches talking about this. So we got our work cut out for us. And that's why we're here. I think this is important too, because we have to not just learn yourself, but teach your parents that Kids go through different identity stages, especially as it relates to sexuality. And each of these stages happen during adolescence. First, there's an identity dilemma. This is when youth have same-sex attractions, if they do experience these. There's a dilemma. I have a same-sex attraction, but it's different than everybody else. How do I process that? It's a dilemma that they struggle with. This often happens uh, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. Then there's the identity development. How do they process that dilemma? I start with a dilemma, and they're trying to resolve that dilemma. How do I get that resolved in my life? Uh, they, they have milestone events. First, they experience this attraction. Uh, it could be behavior that's acted upon, maybe at a, at a girl's sleepover or at a situation like that. It could be a disclosure. Now, when they start telling people, you know, we, we place a big priority on testimony, baptism. This is your public proclamation. It's the same thing here. Once I start telling people this is what I am or this is who I am, it reinforces that in them. Then they start labeling, maybe they enter into relationships, and then they synthesize that dilemma, becomes resolved into an identity. This is who I am. That process happens right when you're ministering to them at the age that God has called you to minister to them. That's why it's so important. So there's a cultural narrative 
And then there's a counter narrative that we have to be experts at and we have to help them process during the, the dilemma stage. So go ahead, you can just scroll through those. And so that's, I think, really the importance of the church and why you're here. I mean, obviously, you're here. we're kind of preaching to the choir because you are here. Um, the second question that as we tackle, the, you know, having this conversation with parents is why the parent? How many of you have some challenging parents? You, if they're here, don't. <laughs> challenging parents in your ministry, right? Um, and, and I would say that um, I think that sometimes it's easy for us to say, well, you don't know my parents, and, you, you know, that would work for maybe, you know, the parents that are great parents, but then there's this other segment. But I think we have to, as leaders, get over this idea that our parents, that we can't bring our parents on board. Obviously, you will have some, but for the most part, um, we have to see the needs that the parents have. I remember um, one of my roles as a crisis case manager is to go into the home and assess what the family needs in order to get better. Now, often in foster care and adoption, what you will find is that parents, by the time they got to crisis case management, they were usually exhausted. Several years had gone by. They had become very disillusioned, and they were grieving what they thought adoption was going to look like. So when I walked in the door, it was, here's my kid, fix them. And I want you to know that is very frustrating because you all know there is no fix for the kid. There has to be a change in the entire family. And I remember one home I went into, I walked in, and this lady, she, you know, I'm a very forward, direct, uh, outgoing person, but she was scary. And I don't get scared very often. She, was, she walked in the door. She never stopped talking. She was so angry. And in her words, her child was a sociopath or going to be a sociopath. Now, she had had three kids. She did have severe kids with severe mental health issues, very scary things like killing animals. Um, and she was just checking a box before a residential application was coming. And her, her thing was, you come in, you take care of the kids. I don't have time for this. So I spent the first couple weeks just kind of spinning my wheels. The kids were not engaged. It was very frustrating. I remember leaving there just going, Lord, how do I help this family? This was a Christian woman, by the way, which is unusual in the secular world. And by week number three, I, I sat down at the table and, and just began to listen. And she began to open up a little bit more and share her frustration. And I, my words were only, I'm so sorry. I didn't tell her what to do. I'm so sorry. That must be really hard. By week number four, tell me more about that. She would open up and share. By week number five, I began to share with her my story. I'm also an adoptive parent. We also have dealt with very difficult mental health issues in our home. And what I saw is the kind of a transformation as the tears would well up in her eyes and she began to share the grief that had been hidden behind all that anger. I tell you that because it's so important. The parent that you sometimes see in front of you is not always that true parent or that real parent that those are often things that they put up to cover pain. And, and I, I want to stress to you so much how important it is that we build a bridge to our parents, that we understand that, you know, we have to do this. It is, it's going to be difficult to do it without our parents because they matter in the fight. And, and uh, they matter for a lot of reasons, but I, I think the very first thing that is really important, and we teach this to our parents, is that the reason they're important is because they have relationship that we don't have. For some of you, you may have just met your kids in ministry just a couple months ago. They may have just shown up. Your parents have known these kids from day one. So they have a bond and they have a trust, hopefully. Again, I know there are exceptions. I work in child welfare. I get that. 
But for the most part, our parents have a relationship of bonding and trust. So that means when they have those hard conversations, which they should, we're teaching them, hey, we want to have them early. Starting from the very beginning of life, we're talking about body parts. We're talking about our sexuality and the, the preciousness of God's gift to us. And we're talking about, you know, things that are really hard. And so that needs to happen primarily in a relationship of trust and attachment. And so our parents matter for that reason. We're going to teach our parents, and we do, that they use real words like penis and vagina, that they use words like masturbation, which I know is a shock when you're in a church for people to actually say that. First time I said it from the platform, I think everybody just froze. What, how do I react? The pastor's wife just said that. But I work in child welfare, so I'm used to this. I had the car running, man. We were yeah. Really Listen, but one of the things that I teach parents is if, and, and I know in the last session, um, Mark shared this too about the importance of naming parts because, and he didn't mention this because I come at it from a different perspective. In child advocacy, one of the hardest things that, um, or things that make it difficult to prove sexual abuse in children is they don't know the names of the body parts. So when the little girl says, my uncle touched my cookies, you can't, you can't do anything about that because we don't know what cookies are. But if we're t so we teach our parents, like in your relationship, you've got to not be awkward. You do it in a, in a respectful way. You're not crass. Okay, if there's two people your kids don't think are having sex, it's their parents. And so we teach them how to, you know, it's not done in front of their siblings. We don't embarrass kids. We really just go about it like this relationship you have is such an opportunity to be able to build into them all of these wonderful things about their sexuality and, and teaching them these hard things and having conversation. Secondly, hold on, I'll pause that. One of, the, one of the things that helps us launch into that is this little exercise. Tell me everything your parents taught you about sex. And again, in a, in a broad audience, uh, you usually get a one sentence. I got a lot of zeros or nadas or whatever. And then I say, wouldn't you have liked at least some kind of guidance? I mean, you think of the, we talk about the big seven areas of decision making in your life, relationships and sexuality, money, all that stuff, all the important stuff. It's like we're radio silence. We're at, you know, so we just basically say here, culture, you'd show them what to do. And so I just appeal to their past and say, wouldn't you like to have a different experience where somebody came alongside of you and guided you through the landmines of this world? Um, and they say, yes, I wish I would have been. I say, you can be that to the next generation. Yeah. You can. And, and it really is only awkward if we as parents and leaders make it awkward. We really have to understand that. And if we wait until they're 14, now it's really awkward. If we've never mentioned it before, but we want to somehow uh, teach them. I think the other thing that is so critical uh, for parents is they have time and proximity that we don't have. You know, we're lucky to get the kids once a week, uh, maybe twice a week if you have uh, multiple service on Sunday and Wednesday or whatever day, or you might get them for an event here or there. But your parents are with those kids 24-7, and no one has more time or opportunity than they do. Now, we have to challenge them to use that time wisely because they're not doing it. I know there's a, a quote in um, one of my favorite books. It's called The Chicken's Guide to Talking uh, Turkey with Kids About Sex. 
It's written by Kevin Lehman and uh, Kathy Flores-Bell, and they say this, most sexually active pubescents and adolescents have one thing in common, busy parents, distracted parents, overwhelmed parents. And so we have to teach them that they have this opportunity that we don't have. We can't do it without them. We can't do it well. We might be able to help, and we, we hopefully there will be opportunities where maybe we can have spiritual parents in the in the church, but ideally it's best if we can get those parents on board. The second thing that is, is critical with time is no one can start earlier than mom and dad. And we talked, I love that session on pornography. Um, I could get on my soapbox and talk about that for hours. Kids are being exposed to pornography earlier and earlier. They believe it's eight now, but there are so many more studies saying it could be even earlier. And so the, the first thing that we have to teach parents is they want to be the first one talking to their kids about sex. Because who do you go to when you have a question? That first person who was willing to put themselves out there and say, you have any questions? Come and see me. We're here to help you. We want to make sure we're ahead of the curve we're addressing it, that it's not something taboo that only the culture talks about, and in the church we don't talk about it. We want to change that dynamic. Let me share the Deb Den story on that. So we do in the church uh, something called protectors. So our, one of the philosophies we have of reaching our culture is solve a problem that enables, to ser- enables you to serve people and then say the gospel, solve, serve, say. And so one of the problems we start addressing is bullying. And so we created a program called Protectors for our junior high boys. That we wanted to let our boys know that God created you to be a protector. I want that in their brain because if, if they don't understand themselves as a protector, their flesh will make them a predator. And so we said, your, God has created you to be a protector, protect yourself first, right? It's the oxygen mask that comes down. Put it on yourself first and you can help others protect yourself and others from bad, bad ideas because the most dangerous thing in the world is a lie that you believe is true. So we talk about different lies in the culture, bad ideas, bad individual or bad images, which is pornography, and bad individuals. Sometimes you have to stand up for those that are being uh, persecuted. Bad ideas, bad images, bad individuals. And we wrap that teaching in uh, a kind of a bullyproof physical protection, self-defense, jujitsu stuff that we do with the boys. Um, but in the process of that, so these are junior high boys, you know, sixth through eighth grade. And uh, there was a boy there, it was eighth grade. We wanted him in the program. We wanted him in the program, but we called the parents and tell them, hey, we want you to know that this is what we're covering. We're going to address pornography in this. And the mother said, oh, yeah, I'd love my boy to be in there, but I, I don't think he's ready I don't, I don't want you kind of talking about that stuff. I don't think he's heard about this yet. And we had, you know, we tried to have to tell her, oh, hold on a second. He's eighth grade in a public school. Yeah. Trust me. Yeah. He's very heard about this. You know, let us help you with this process. Uh, you know, see you late to the game. And yeah. So. Yeah, and I did a, an internship with Children's Protective Services, Foster Care, and Juvenile Justice, and I will tell you, if your kids rise a school bus, they're going to be exposed. We had a kid exposed in our church cafe from another kid who had a smartphone, and it is going to be happening. You And again, you want to equip. The goal, we, you know, we obviously want to protect, and there are things that we can do. We'll talk about the resources, and I know Mark shared a lot of resources to protect, but the goal as a parent is to equip. What do you do when you see pornography? What do you do when that child shows you a picture of something that makes you uncomfortable? What do you do? The line that I use to help parents understand is I tell them, 
your child may not be looking for pornography, but pornography is looking for your child. Yes. It's looking for them. It will find them at some level. So you have to be ready on that. Um, so, uh, you know, all of that, equipping your kids, uh, girls' sleepovers. Again, a lot of the same-sex attraction things, those can take place at sleepovers. You don't want to be paranoid, but you equip. What do you do if? And so we're teaching parents to not just protect or isolate. That has been the tendency in the church. It's just isolate your kid, but equip them. That's why I think if you, you know, say there are no cell phones in the home until you're 18, well, what happens when that child is 18? If they haven't learned how to do it with a parent there coaching them and really helping them in that process. So getting parents on board to see that, that they have time and proximity. I think the other thing about time is that no one has more opportunity to see red flags or trouble than parents. Or change, a change or, in behavior or right. attitude. To say, you know, listen, you have eyes on them. You see and you know. And, and I love it when a parent has it and then they have a person like you guys that they can come to and talk it out and say, I think something's wrong. And you guys can begin to pray and ask the Lord, you know, help us to see and, and, and work together as a team. And I think that's really critically important. The last thing um, is that the parent is typically, again, I know in most cases, they are the ones that is they're most vested in the future of their kids. Their hearts are wound up in those kids. They love those kids, and they're willing to do just about everything. Again, I know there are some parents that aren't like that, and the more that we have kids from outside the church, the more we're going to have parents who are dysfunctional. But I think it's an opportunity to um, invest in those parents. I'll talk about that in a second. Their churches have no dysfunctional people. <laughs> How many they're all yeah, perfectly functional people. There is a... a, a scientific study that I love to share with parents. It's called The Science of Adolescent Risk-Taking. It's in your, your notes. You'll have that reference there. Um, but what I love about it is because even in the secular world, they support this idea that parental supervision and positive parental relationships impact kids in a, in a good way when it comes to sexuality. So even the world understands this, that if you have an attentive parent, it makes a lot of difference in the life of a kid. The other thing that was awesome is in a national survey conducted by the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy, even teens report that their parents have the greatest influence over their decisions about sex. Isn't that crazy? Because what, what will parents say? I can't even get them to do their chores. I can't. They don't listen to anything I say. But what teens themselves have said is more than their friends, their siblings, or the media is that they will often share their parents' view about sexuality and make decisions about that. That was from the CDC. That's not a Christian organization saying that. So listen, here's the reality. Parents are a God idea. And as much as possible, we want to engage them in this process. We want to equip them and empower them and get on the same team. Now, the question will often come up, what about the parent who doesn't come to church? This is an amazing opportunity to meet needs of unsaved parents. Working in a secular environment with parents, what we did is we asked ourselves this question, what were the needs that our parents had? And I will tell you that parents who are not Christians are worried about technology. They are worried about pornography. They are worried about sexuality. They're worried about drugs. And if you can find creative ways to build a bridge become a partner with them on the easy things, and there's a lot of easy things that you agree with them on. Then when you get to the other things, the more difficult, challenging things um, you know, that are out there, you'll have a relationship to begin those discussions and those processes. So for example, when I worked in post-adoption, 
we partnered with our church. I said, okay, can we do this together, offer it to our church parents and also our adoptive parents. And we brought in Chris McKenna from Protect Young Eyes, who I highly recommend. Um, Chris is, is doing, he used to be a youth pastor. He will, um, anything digital, technology, pornography, he can cover it or his team. And um, the, the, the resources in your guide there, I'll share it with you in a minute. But He knows the latest apps, the latest technology. I don't have to do it all because Chris right. does it for us. Yeah. <laughs> How your kid can access pornography through which right. platform. So we invited Chris in, and, and having kids in a digital culture was the topic of the conversation. And I will tell you, more secular parents showed up than our church parents. I was so disappointed in our church parents. So what did we do? We found a need that they had. They were overwhelmed. They are frustrated. They feel like they can't do anything. And we said, come in. And then Chris just resourced them, and we built bridges. Talk to them about pornography. Talk to them about the things that they're struggling with, and you can build a bridge to them. And let them know you're on their team. Because once you do that, I think you'll have an open door into their homes. And hopefully, you'll bring them into your church family, too, because they trust you. So practically here, as we wrap this up, how, how, how would we do this? As youth ministers, kids ministers, youth leaders, based on the idea that a lot of people didn't get taught on this growing up, so a lot of the parents that you're ministering to are clueless themselves, right? They're making it up as they go. So they're looking for what I would call the accessible expert, someone they're in relationship with that they can go to. That's where our youth pastors and pastors come in, kids pastors. They have to be an accessible expert because what, what I found, and most pastors are readers, but if I said, oh, here, let me give you this book, they just won't read it. They don't have the time. It's not their inclination. It's not their, what they do, they came to me. They said, help me. What they want me to do is read the books, become the expert, and then hand them a cooked meal. This is what you need to do. Now, whether I like that or not, that's the nature of reality. That's just how it is. So how do you, how do you become, when, when I was a youth pastor, and part of this was motivated financially because I was poor. Uh, I didn't get paid a lot. In fact, they didn't pay me anything for a while. I said to myself, I'm going to become the, the local expert for adolescent issues. And, you know, the more you learn, the more you earn. And so I just dove into whatever kids were dealing with. That's why I came up, I saw these patterns of these big seven issues that, that they're decision-making. But also I realized that I could be an expert in my own mind, but if I wasn't accessible as a person to people, they would never come to me, right? Either, well, he's just too intimidating, or I don't like him, or he's abrasive, or he never returns my phone calls, or whatever. So issues of character... Returning phone calls, being accessible, showing up on time. You know, the little things that parents look at, like, did, did you come home on the retreat on time? And, and all that stuff plays in their psychology, whether they're, they're going to trust you or not, like it or not. That's just the nature of that. Um, are, you a, are you a good communicator about little things before I ask you about big stuff? So there's that accessibility part. As a human and as a leader, are you accessible and approachable? And then uh, the next one is, as a communicator, are you connected? Do we have this up there? Oh, yeah, connectivity. So to become an accessible expert, you need credibility and connectivity. 
how do you, all, what systems of communication do you already have? What bridges have you already built to your parents? So I was a youth pastor in two different churches. In the first church I was at, it was a highly developed network of parents and leaders, of adult leaders. It was amazing. It was a treasure trove of adult parents and leaders. At the church plant I was a youth pastor at, we had zero. And I was shocked. You know, where, where are the youth? Uh, you're it, man. Yeah, you're it. And, and the kids that we had, many of them unsafe parents, some of them church, church kids, um, but their parents, they're like, yeah, we're glad you're here, man. Go take them. I, you know, I could have told them the moon was made of green cheese, and they would have said, okay, yeah, whatever. As long as you're taking them for once a week, I don't, I don't care. Um, so what bridges have you already built? Create those contacts about everything in your ministry, and then sexuality is just part of that. It's not new. It's like, oh, we need to talk to our parents about this. There's lots of other things to talk to your parents about. What bridges have you built? Uh, in the process. Now, what we've done is uh, use this topic to bring people together. My wife has done a number of Zoom sessions um, on various parenting topics, and people show up to those. Yeah, the convenience of it, and I think with COVID, this has opened a door that's not going to close. We thought it would close. We hoped it would close because we're like another Zoom night, but now we're all feeling it. It's pretty good because you don't have to leave your home Parents can show up at the, you know, it's easy to walk into the bedroom and, and log onto the computer and you can wear your sweatpants and you don't have to think about anything. Um, so Zoom is a huge, I don't think it's going to go away and it's easy for parents who are already overwhelmed and busy. So, you know, you're making it. How many of you guys have used some kind of Zoom, okay, or any kind of online training? Um, we also did in-person seminars. We did a half-day uh, sex talks seminar. Yeah, we did. So that was, and this is online too. If you go to our church website, I don't know how far back you have to scroll. Um, in our notes packet that we have, there's a QR code in there. If you scan that QR code, it gives you uh, my personal file on sex, sexual, sexuality, gender. Gives you all the notes all the PowerPoints that we did for our seminar, uh, all, all that stuff's in there. You just go right to the Google Drive thing, and, and that's there. There's probably, I don't know, 300 files of articles, videos, just stuff that I use where I think, I need to talk about this, but, you More know. than you'll ever want. That's what I looked at, and I'm <laughs> right. like, what? He goes, just give me a QR code, all right? And this is what we do at our Sex Talk seminars. We equip par parents. We give them resources and a lot of what's in that file will be those things where we say, okay, you know, here's a bunch of different options on how to talk to your kids about sex. There's even one option. I love this. Dr. Meg Meeker lives in Traverse City. She's a pediatrician. She has a curriculum where she will do the talk, and you sit with your child. But she says, whatever you do, don't hand your kid a, a book, say, read this, and ask me if you have any questions. Because they will never ask you, and they, they'll be horrified while they read it. You have to be a part of it. So we, we say, whatever your ability, even if you can't force yourself to have the, or have the conversation, somebody can do it for you, here's a resource. So we put those in their hands as much as possible. So in your, I believe, in his fold, or the QR code will take you to a resource page that we give to our parents, which has all of these on there. It also has um, the Protect Young Eyes website link. Fight the new drug. Anybody heard of Fight the New Drug? Okay, listen, I'm telling you, if the world says porn kills love, 
because that's their kind of their mantra, then how much more should we jump on board with them and say, yes, this is killing uh, marriages. I have sat as a lead pastor's wife with so many women in the last six months in tears saying my husband is addicted to porn and he doesn't see anything wrong with it. And so um, we have to educate. And, and again, maybe in having these conversations about how porn is destroying us, we can minister to a father or to, even to a mother who's struggling with that. So I think all of these resources are on our resource page um, that's in the folder that you'll see in there. Um, for me, my, uh, I, I talk about the STDs when I talk about sex with parents and, and how important it is to teach our kids. The CDC has everything you need. Um, and again, it's up to date, always changing. It's um, very depressing. How many of you have been to the CDC website and looked at the STD statistics? Okay, so kids, I can't remember the, the statistics of uh, what, uh, teenagers basically have over half of the STDs. In, in proportion to, um, you know, they're like a fourth of the population, the general population, but they have half of the STDs, and it's a tragedy. Um, and there's so much information from a secular standpoint about how awful this is and how much it's increased. Between um, one in four, one in five sexually active people have a STD at this point. So getting so, kids and, and uh, parents Russian to talk about it, yeah. right? Only with the five-chambered gun. I don't know if there's any more. Oh, oh these, these are your books, books, and those are awesome. Yeah, so these are some things, just some resources. Again, if you want to be... I always say, if you want to be an expert, outread your peers. If you want to be a leader, out-communicate them. Uh, so it starts with learning. You study to show yourself a group. Here's some books that I think are really helpful. Anything by Sean McDowell right now? Anybody remember Josh McDowell back in the day? Yeah, so anyway, he, he had a child who is actually standing on his shoulders, and he's doing amazing work for this generation right now. Okay, I'm not familiar with her as much. Oh, okay, nobody knows her. Yeah, right, exactly. But Yeah, so he, yeah, Sean has a great YouTube channel. Uh, he's also on TikTok. I haven't found him there yet, but he's also on there. His YouTube channel, every Wednesday night, he does a live conversation with somebody. Um, I think the last one had to do with gender and sexuality, but it's always on hot-button topics. And he's so thoughtful. He does, he does a good interview. It's an hour well spent, and, and uh, so he does a good job on that stuff. If you want a kind of a philosophical treatment on sexuality, Jay Budzeszewski is a uh, teacher, I think, at the University of Texas, a philosophy teacher. He's one of the few Christians on campus, but he, he's so thoughtful about it. If you want a historical treatment, in the first session, he talked about how we're moving back toward kind of the New Testament sexual ethic, the Greco-Roman sexual ethic, this book, uh, Sexuality, uh, sexual morality in a Christless world is great. It is de it's depressing and hopeful at the same time. It's depressing in the sense where you read about the history of the New Testament church and their sexual morality, and you say, man, those people are messed up. And then you think, oh, okay, the church made a difference in that culture. I guess we can too. Uh, and then homosexual homosexuality. Chris Yuan is kind of one of the leading voices. <clears throat> His story, struggle with same-sex attraction. Uh, went to dental school. Uh, got a drug habit, went to prison, came to Christ uh, at some level. And his first book, Out of a Far Country, is his story of how he and his mother journeyed, you know, when he kind of came out to them and their struggle as a parent, and then how he came to Christ. I think he's a professor at Moody, Moody Bible Institute now. So his stuff's good theologically. Um, that's his latest book. 
and it's really good treatment, not just on homosexuality, but on general sexuality. Is God Anti-Gay is a book that we have had for years in our church foyer. We just have it out there as a giveaway. We don't promote it. We don't do anything. We just have, is God anti-gay? And so funerals, weddings, and whenever there's a bunch of secular, that book just flies off the shelf. And we don't say anything about it. It's just there. Uh, and it's a really good treatment. Sam Albury's a British fella. His issue, he's, he struggles with same-sex attraction, but he lives a Christian celibate life. And he does a good job of, it's a thin book, quick read on dealing with that topic. This is a thick book. It's more clinical. Joe Dallas, uh, Nancy Hesh, uh, from a Christian psychological point of view. And again, if you're going to deal with this subject, it can't just be the theology of it these days because people are getting their information from psychologists. You have to understand how the secular psychologists are, are thinking about this and how the Christian psychologists are thinking about this. Do I have any more? Oh, gender dysphoria. If you haven't read When Harry Became Sally... Um, you can't get it on Amazon. It was banned uh, uh, on Amazon, but you can find it in different, different outlets. And Embodied Preston Sprinkle is one of the leading lights, Christian, kind of a pastoral take on this. He does a good job. If you want the double whammy, watch the video when Sean McDowell interviewed Preston Sprinkle, and they're both together on that. So he does a good job. That's his book, Embodied. Understanding Gender Dysphoria, Mark Yarhouse, again, kind of a pastoral treatment. Then Linda Seiler is an AG pastor. She was, for a long time, the Chi Alpha leader at Purdue University. She herself struggled. She didn't want to be a girl. And so she struggled with dysphoria for a long time. And so her story is a journey of how the Chi Alpha ministers and ministries helped her walk out of that. Now she just, I think this year, got her PhD, I think, in topics like this. So if you go to her web, website, lindaseiler.com, she has a lot of articles. I would recommend taking the paid course. I think it's 50 bucks where she teaches on, on this for, I don't know how many hours. Um, oh, there we go. Do you have, have you read Love No, I haven't. I haven't. That's uh, Nancy Piercy, right? Yeah. yeah. I've, I've listened to her talk about it, but I haven't read it. I think it's on like the Life of Love or something. Yeah, anything by her is good that I've read. Yeah, I just listened to a podcast. I can't remember who interviewed her, but I, I just listened to a podcast not too long ago uh, on her. Nancy Piercy is another one. I don't think she has. That's more of a philosophy of uh, our physical bodies are communicating something about who we are. You see, the transgender movement has said the physical body doesn't really have anything to say about us. It's just what we feel inside that matters. And she's saying, nope, we are composite beings. God has made us body and soul. And so... How should we look at what the body is communicating about who we are as people? Yeah, we could go on for a long time, but yeah. Thank you for sharing your contact information too. Oh yeah.